0: on the CASP, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. And to our new listeners, a particular welcome. I'm your host, Elizabeth raw and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, when the solar winds intrusion was discovered at the end of last year, there were lots of calls on President Trump to hit back big against Russia, which was quickly, of course, assumed to be the perpetrator. And then there were calls on President Biden to hit back big, especially when it was established that Russia was the perpetrator. Now, Biden has responded, but not with a massive counterstrike in cyberspace, but with relatively modest punishment. Uh, diplomats have been expelled and uh, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on a few Russian companies, plus U.S. banks will no longer be able to buy Russian debts. Now, this is what Biden said when announcing the punishment. He said, I chose to be proportionate, which is not what what, uh, many people had uh, thought would happen and uh, what they had uh, hoped would happen. They they wanted a a, a big... um, Uh, strike that would uh, teach Russia never to engage in cyber aggression again. But as with all race and aggression, it's extremely difficult to figure out what's suitable punishment uh, to cyber aggression. It has to be legal, it has to be effective, and it can't be too predictable, which is why diplomat expulsions are a tool of last resort. And precisely because it shouldn't be predictable, it's foolish to signal that cyber aggression will be avenged with cyber aggression. And of course, Western countries engage in cyber aggression as well, which is a point we often discussed here on on the CASP. And cyber defense and deterrence is, in other words, not just about hacking back or even not primarily about that. It's about creating a cocktail of measures, or should I say a soup? Uh, Either way, it should be a combination of several different ingredients. But which ones? That's, of course, the the, uh, urgent question. Now, Kieran Martin uh, is well known to all of you as a founding chief executive of the UK National Cybersecurity Centre, which was, uh, when it was founded, a pioneering cyber one stop shop and uh, has since had many visits from uh, other governments that want to, to set up similar outfits. Kieran has also held other roles within the UK government, including as constitution director. Uh, where he uh, negotiated the basis of the Scottish referendum uh, with the Scottish government ahead of the 2014 referendum, so he is also an expert on what might be coming our way uh, uh, in terms of a second Scottish referendum after the May um, elections in Scotland, and he was also Uh, He also played an important role in the royal succession laws, which were changed, as you will remember, just before Prince George was born. So, Kieran, first of all, welcome. And second of all, what did you make of Biden's response? I
1: think it was a fascinating development. I think that given the hand he was dealt, he played a reasonably astutely, he was under a lot of pressure, some of which was self-generated from um uh, his statement as president-elect that um he was going to take solar winds very seriously, which I think was welcome, but there was then a reference to imposing substantial costs, which slightly dug them into a hole. I think what that reflected was um uh, two things. One, I think, was welcome, which was that it's now quite clear, given the strength of the team on cybersecurity that President Biden has assembled, it's quite clear that President Trump had deprioritized uh, the issue of cybersecurity in America, was paying a penalty uh, 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 for that. Um, and so that was a good thing. But I think also, um, perhaps less good, <clears throat> it reflected um, uh, still immature and slightly incoherent debate about responses in cyberspace and unacceptable norms of uh, of behavior so I think at the turn of the year we were left with the impression that the incoming president um, had perhaps teed up a scenario where a very aggressive cyber based response uh, uh, would be forthcoming. There was a rather odd leak to the New York Times a few months later when the president had taken up office, which implied that perhaps such a uh, strike was being readied and a lot of experts were really quite baffled um, by this uh, for two reasons, uh, two related reasons. Uh, one which you said Elizabeth in your introduction. I mean this may have been strategically damaging and it was and America was very much harmed uh, by it strategically Um, these huge accesses to government departments to tools of cybersecurity companies to big tech companies and so forth. Uh, but it was a stretch, I think, to say that America was wronged by uh, by solar winds um, and secondly, even though um, you know even uh, though it was um, mainly a large-scale espionage uh, operation i mean those still in cold war days elicited responses it's perfectly legitimate to respond to a espionage operation even if it hasn't um, uh, crossed any uh, uh, red lines um, but uh, um doing it through uh, a, a sort of kinetic cyber activity uh, seemed to be very escalatory um, uh, with all sorts of Implications for the precedent for our understanding. I mean, what were they going to do? Were they going to take out the news in Moscow? Were they going to hit a power supply to a civilian population? Um, they could have tried to hit some of the Russian intelligence services, but they'll be very hard targets and, and so forth. So it was very hard to see what they were going to do. So, um, uh, in some respects, whilst there are um, some rough edges to the president's package, um, it's quite clever. Uh, firstly, there is an asymmetry. Um, Russia does need currency trading it does need money and withdrawing all of that is um is perfectly sensible i think what's um uh more sensible um still uh was packing it up if you look there's a long list of cyber and non-cyber malign activity from russia in the document so whilst um it is headlined with solar winds um in terms of cyber activity there's the world anti-doping agency uh hack which did violate norms by leaking details of athletes personal uh, details there were um, leaks uh, there, there was the reference to the not petty attack which did you know uh, many billions of dollars damage yeah. to perfectly innocent commercial uh, um, uh, 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 organizations across europe There was a reference to the salisbury uh, attack in 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 the uk which is of course horrific nothing to do with cyber um so you know by wrapping it up i think it gave it a bit more credibility still with all that in mind um so i think and i'm put it this way um there's a certain amount of, um, uh, um, I think, there's a certain amount of relief in many European countries, including in the UK, that you have a US president very firmly standing up to this um, you know, egregious and awful behaviour from Russia over many years. There's a certain amount of relief uh, with that, and so I think, on balance, plenty of reasonable Western liberal democrats will give the president the benefit of the doubt. In the narrower specialist field of cybersecurity, there will be a little bit of well it's hard enough trying to convince non-aligned countries in the age of tech competition with China. It's hard enough convincing swing voter countries, if you like, of that the West is serious about fair rules of the internet. And there's a little bit of the SolarWinds response that makes that a tiny bit harder. You You know, please accept our good faith. We want to build a free and open fair internet that's fair to the likes of you. Well, the obvious counter to that is, but you're saying your spying is fine, but ever but Russia's isn't, and so there's a little bit of that. But overall, I think it's a clever package given the the, the hand to the president, was dealt.
0: On the other hand, you could say that that uh, solar winds uh, was an an example of successful deterrence in cyberspace because those. Uh, the operatives that went in could have <laughs> crossed the line to destruction, and, and they didn't. They just did espionage, and yes, that was bad enough, but could it be uh, Could it be the case that, that actually it demonstrates that whatever cyber deterrence the U.S. has uh, in place uh, was successful? Or, or um, on the other hand, should we argue that it, it's, it was just not in Russia's interest anyway? And this, of course, comes back to the, the really difficult question of, of what constitutes successful deterrence, you can't prove a negative, Uh, but here I'm asking you to, 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 uh, uh, to try to prove it anyway, or to comment on it at least.
1: Well, I'm not sure that it does provide evidence of successful deterrence. I mean, firstly, there is, I know it's boring, but there is a strong institutional explanation for what has happened. This activity was undertaken apparently by the SVR. Um, So the Russian, if you like, MI6 in UK terms, and that has no post-Soviet history uh, of um, disruptive uh, cyber activity. It has plenty of post-Soviet history of espionage activity. Uh, the GRU and the FSB, so Russian uh, military intelligence and domestic um, uh, security intelligence have uh, have plenty of history of doing that disruptive um, uh, uh, attack. So, for example, you know, I, I think one decent comparison, if you want to try and get down to the forensics of the two of, of, of a comparator is the 2016 interference in the US election and the hack and leak. So um which um you uh, know was done uh, wasn't done by the uh, by the SVR, it is believed, uh, and in that case, stage one of a two-stage operation was the same as solar winds, you know, try and gather some information from the Democratic National committee servers and a, an aid to Secretary Clinton's uh, email account. Um, And that passive activity, um, in a sense, would not have violated any norms because, I mean, as we will recall, at that point, uh, Secretary Clinton was regarded as the overwhelming favorite to become the next president of the United States. So um, I think most people would have assumed that the Russian state was trying to spy on her and her campaign by uh, however they could manage it. Um, What was then violated norms was the decision to do a data dump. Uh, in the middle of a particularly sensitive time in the election uh, campaign in order to potentially um, you know, uh, change the narrative and possibly change the way some people were going to vote and obviously we can't prove um, how that worked um, so any espionage operation I mean the one thing that um, uh, there are a number of um, justifications that were briefed out from the White House that weren't part of the official documentation which I think a lot of experts have um, uh, uh find rather unconvincing. Uh, one of them is that um, this was this gave the potential for further disruptive uh, activity. Well, all espionage attacks give the potential for disruptive activity. And if that's the reason, then you don't spy. Um, uh, you know there are other things about the cost of the cleanup being borne by the private sector again there's nothing particularly uh there's nothing particularly new about that i think it is interesting if you're going into um uh so you know there's no um uh, i think the other there's a technical aspect to the operation as i understand it uh, which i think also perhaps tilts you away from concluding that successful deterrence which is that um The uh, accesses provided by the intrusion into solar ones were many. You know, there were nearly twenty thousand. It is believed, Uh, most of those were closed Mm -hmm. down very, very quickly. uh, and uh, the high value targets um, were discreetly um, kept uh, open and that implies that the purpose of that campaign uh, was not to implant dangerous material all over the American internet but it was actually to maintain a covert presence in selected institutions for as long as possible Now, of course we cannot be certain of that it's, S- it's digital espionage but on balance from what I know of the case uh, would, uh, would suggest that this was a deliberate espionage operation, uh, rather than one that was designed to go further but was deterred from so doing.
0: Yes, that that makes a lot of sense, and and we shouldn't forget that that uh, it's not just in our countries that government agencies engage in intense rivalry. It's it's the case in other countries as well. I wanted to switch to um, a completely different development, which is uh, something that has been going on uh, with north korean cyber operatives over over many years which uh, is that they essentially combine uh, organized crime with um, state-sponsored cyber aggression and steal money <laughs> to fund uh, the, the country's nuclear research program obviously uh, their targets are not usually in the west because we are better protected but if you are the bank of bangladesh you are in a very poor uh, situation because your accounts uh, you will have lost, uh, as was indeed the case a couple of years ago, uh, uh, was it 189 million dollars uh, to the North Korean hackers, and and so this is a a, a different iteration of, of cyber aggression where uh, the the, uh, the objective is not to cause destruction or or even to spy that much, but but to steal money and. Uh, these uh, operatives also seem to be very clever in the way of, of, of uh, in, in organizing the, the criminal aspect to it, not just the, the, tactical, the tac- tactical and technical aspect. So I, I guess the, 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 the question for people like you is how to help the targeted countries uh, better protect themselves. <laughs> and, uh, central banks in, de- in developing countries aren't uh, at risk of, of losing their assets constantly uh, and in- indirectly funding uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons program?
1: I think it's a fascinating question. I remember very clearly from my time in the UK government um, that transformation of North Koreans from... they were When I started in around 2014, they were seen as rather similar to the Iranian um, uh, cyber sec- uh, cyber attack cyber intrusion program in that they were um not hugely technically sophisticated but their risk appetite was you know high to the point of recklessness um and uh, they would do some spying because that 's what a lot of governments will do but they would also do disruptive um attacks um to uh retaliate in their view against people uh, and governments who'd annoyed them uh so you know iran uh did attacks on sheldon edelson's casino after he made a speech calling for i think a nuclear strike against uh, iran uh, north korea of course famously hit sony and not just um uh, not just sort of stole some george clooney emails and leaked them uh, they actually you know, destroyed quite a bit of sony's corporate infrastructure and you know, that, that was actually much harder on the company than the embarrassment of a few celebrity emails. Um, but then over the course of the next few years, uh, North Korea changed into, I think I used to use the phrase in private, but I see, um, I think the US Department of Justice at very senior levels and I started using it publicly in indictments, the, the, the world's first state backed um, cybercrime syndicate, uh, which is what they have become. It's an extraordinary uh, and dangerous um, uh, development. Um, So we've had, um, you mentioned the Bank of Bangladesh. I think uh, the same uh, type of activity gave me probably the toughest weekend of my six and a half years running UK cybersecurity because WannaCry, um, the WannaCry attack we believe was a similar attempt to extort some money out of some financial institutions in Asia, uh, which went badly wrong, spread all over the world. And we ended up in the bizarre situation of british hospitals getting ransom uh um uh, notices uh and indeed as i remember uh the the train announcements on german railway platforms also being um uh disrupted i think also you know we've seen various uh attempts to do you know atm cash outs and that sort of thing uh what is the mitigation um there is um uh i mean it's very difficult uh in terms of the sort of thing we we're talking about with president biden and russia i mean you know I'm no expert on sanctions or North Korea, but as I understand it, there's not an awful lot, there's not very many more sanctions you could put on North Korea. Um, uh, And clearly, there's no appetite for military um, action. Um, I'm sure, you know, if there is an opportunity to disrupt their cyber uh, attack infrastructure, then that will be taken. But again, that can be quite difficult to do. Um, So uh, there is something which is you know, to use the jargon of cybersecurity threat action neutral, which is really important. Um, uh, In other words, there's something about the resilience of the banks to mm-hmm. attacks. So the Bank of Bangladesh case is fascinating in this case, because as I understand it, I think the figure of the money that was actually taken and cashed out in all sorts of places, including casinos in Manila was $81 million, but it was quite close to being $850 million. And the reason it wasn't was because um. The federal reserve bank of new york um in, in a routine regulatory uh, check noticed some anomalous activity and managed to uh, stop it similarly you know in the uk um, and I, I i'm not saying this is north korean but it's an example of the sort of thing you can do Um, you know, there were particular alerts that you just remember, there's something in the NCSC's annual report from 2019 about automatic alerts uh, to put out to 54 banks to block activity, repatriating credit cards, so So there's an awful lot about making the infrastructure um, uh, safer, which I think is extraordinarily um, uh, uh, important. And and
0: So, because this is such a, a a big risk uh, to developing countries in particular because they don't have uh, the expertise that that developed countries have and because every central bank does have a bit of cash available. I I wonder or something I thought about is should Western development aid include uh, cyber experts who could uh, be uh, uh, dispatched to those countries uh, in the same way that that, uh, water infrastructure experts and, and uh, power, irrigation, uh, uh, other health experts were dispatched in the past. Do you think that would be a, a useful thing to do?
1: I certainly think it's an interesting idea, and I think if you look at some of the NGO efforts led by, you know, for example, you know, the great American cyber diplomat Chris Painter at the GFCE and the, the Global um, uh, Center for Cyber Capacity Building, and efforts like that. Um, uh, you know they've um, done some really good work at, at 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 NGO level. I also think that there's something that we can do to help um, developing countries assess the risk. I mean, you know, we're still in this um, period. Uh, we're still in this sort of era as we were for more uh, uh, for richer countries a few years ago, um, where we're just sort of assuming that the 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 playbook for cybersecurity is all encompassing. Well, you know, if um, well it isn't. You know, um, I think most countries. Um, uh are at risk from the sort of north korean um heists um and there's a set of generic things i mean i mean again to get a little bit specific uh swift endpoints are a good way are a good place to start i mean the bank of bangladesh heist was done by i mean swift uh the interbank clearance uh, system as a system is one of the most secure in the world as it absolutely should be. Um, But the endpoints are only as secure as the the protections at the end of them, and there are 11,000 or so as I understand it. So that's um, uh, where where, where that comes in. I also think though that we need to help um, uh, developing countries, you make proper risk assessments. So for example, um, uh, some middle and lower income countries aren't specific and direct threat from Russian interference most of the world isn't uh there's a some and you know it's expensive to defend yourself against the very specific type of russian uh, interference so don't tell countries that actually really should be worrying about their swift endpoint from the yeah. north green don't don't export the anti-russia playbook to them because i mean you know for better or worse if you're a sub-saharan uh african country or um, at the lower, lower end of south america or plenty of other places you know russia geopolitically has. Precious little interest in you, and certainly as compared to say Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, yeah. Ukraine, or uh, or places like that. So I think there is more we can do. Um, uh, capacity building in um, in cyber in the normal in uh, in in those parts of the world um, is not should not be a generic um, playbook by any means. And this is a very specific thing. I think we could we could help with. I mean, yeah. because the other attack. <laughs> which I think was less successful, um, but just to show it's not particularly regionalized to different parts of Asia. Uh, I mean, shortly after Bangladesh, the Bank of Bangladesh, I think the central bank of Sierra Leone was um, targeted. So, you know, I think um, it, it is a significant it is a significant problem, but it is one that can be detained. And again, you know, I think US leadership in this and hopefully broader Western leadership uh, can help. I mean, the US I think has started to take quite a strong interest in this, the recent indictments and the recent stepping up of US Efforts and the calling out of North Korea as effectively the state-sponsored cyber criminal is um, is 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 uh, is a very welcome step. Yeah,
0: and it, it also sends a, a positive signal to all those countries that may feel uh, insufficiently protected but don't really have the resources to do anything about it. <laughs> there is somebody uh, that's
1: uh, that's. And actually, given that when we started uh, on this conversation, Elizabeth, we were talking about perhaps. Some countries might find our and particularly the U.S.'s um, overtures about, you know, fair rules on the Internet a little bit less convincing um, post the SolarWinds response. That's one way of, of, of offsetting that. That's one way of saying, look, we are here to help you uh, secure yourself. Um, you know, no, this isn't the sort of activity that um, lends itself to our surveillance or influence. This is a genuine offer of help. We will help you fix your banking system because we're not going to be stealing your money. You know, we don't do yeah. that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, one uh, uh quick uh additional problem I, I wanted to ask you about uh, is uh the way uh, ransomware is developing and it seems to me that virtually every organization has backup uh, uh copies available so that they're not stuck when when uh, in case of a successful ransomware attack but it seems to me that that the 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 Way it is developing, developing, and will develop is that uh, that material will instead that the threat will instead be that it will be released uh, publicly, and uh, essentially uh, lots of people's uh, data compromised. Uh, so, what do we do about that? It's it, 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 that's something that that you can't. Uh, I mean, no backup copy will save you from that. So, what do we do?
1: Well. Firstly that's definitely happening uh, secondly, I think that um, it changes the calculus for everybody, including societies as a whole so let's take the issue of um let's take two issues one is whether payments should be criminalized and the other payments of ransom should be criminalized and the other is the role of insurance so um uh in the u k um uh, extortion laws are mainly influenced by the experience of international terrorism in the first decade of this century. So, if you get, if I got kidnapped um, by a terrorist group, um, my family, my friends are not allowed to pay a ransom for my release because it's a terrorist group. Uh, if, however, I was kidnapped by a bunch of hooligans across the road, you're allowed to pay them. Um, uh, the same is true in cyber uh, space um and terrorist groups do not do ransomware attacks so essentially um, uh, so essentially it is legal to pay uh, uh ransoms now i can see all sorts of problems with banning it but i favor a presumption of it and i certainly favor a strong um public um uh policy process to evaluate whether they should be why well and i think this trend that you've just talked about elizabeth uh, burnishes the case because why would you pay a ransom well let's say it's a hospital and it's been ransomware or public authority dealing with child protection and it's got and the backups don't work or they've got no backups and there's a risk to public safety or it's an energy company. or something. There's a risk to public safety. Yes, I can understand in those circumstances. If you think um, and, and there's a moral case for paying the ransom, it's a very, very difficult ethical and moral choice, but you can see why it might be done. It must be a really precious data set if you think it's okay to pay several million dollars to a bunch of criminals. I mean, that must be one heck of a data set, really, you know, is your IP that valuable? Um, Is your customers, you know, um, so if you look at there's a case, I can just look it up. Um, But there was a case highlighted, um, a Polish company um, who were ransomware and it was data leakages. and what they did was, they said, "No, we've got backups. So this isn't going to disrupt our business. Um, uh, we are going to publish the ransom note. We're going to publish all the technical details of the attack and make it freely available uh, to uh, researchers and so forth. And we will not pay the ransom." And I thought that was yeah. incredibly powerful. And then they yeah. said, "If they leak the data, if they leak some of our customer data, we're really sorry, but we thought you'd rather have your data, you know, treated a bit on the dark web than us pay some criminals yeah. and lots of money." And, you know, it's one of those moments where you wanted to stand up and applaud. So I do think that the move towards extortion based on data does change it because it makes the case for paying ransoms far, far uh, weaker. So what then does that involve? Well, let's then move on to regulation. When the data is personal data you get into GDPR territory. So there, and I'm not criticizing regulators in the UK, we've got a really enlightened regulator who for years has said, if you work with the NCSC, for example, I will rather than, uh, you know, ask the ncsc for all the evidence so i can throw the book at you i will um actually take that into account in mitigation so although you know policy hasn't yet developed i would assume that you know if you refuse to pay a ransom and data is leaked uh, then you're not going to get further punished because that you know and so regulation needs to be clever uh, in that uh, respect but then i also think you know insurance um um you know, insurance is operating lawfully and of course the, the role of insurance is to compensate people when things go wrong. So, you know, I can see why the logic is to, um, you know, encourage people to pay ransoms and then cover it. but. Should we not be getting the government and the insurance industry and so on together and doing some analysis, which is to, you know, given that insurance is essentially computational, you know, what is the most cost-effective way of dealing with this yeah. problem? How have we ended up where with a situation where time and again the answer is the most cost-effective way of getting of getting rid of this problem is to pay the ransom? What's wrong with our inputs yeah. to do that output? Because as I say, There must be one heck. I mean, if you seriously are going to pay, so that somebody won't embarrass you by a data leak. I mean, okay, if it's a list of soldiers' names and addresses and so forth, I can see there might be a threat to life issue in that. If it's a customer database, I just you know it's changing the dynamic. So we need to have a public policy conversation about whether uh, ransom payment. I mean, every time I talked about um criminalizing ransom payments somebody would say but what about the hospitals not being able to admit people we're not talking about that here we're talking about data leakage so hang on let's have a different conversation on the law on insurance on commercial and how do we incentivize um, better protections through insurance and all the rest of it let's change the business model and we've got a chance to do that because the criminals business model is changing and it's changing in a way that is actually less harmful therefore we shouldn't be paying them for the privilege
0: and, and uh, if a country uh, makes it keeps making the case publicly that companies based in, in our country uh, are not allowed to pay ransom, that essentially removes uh, any uh, incentive for for uh, organizations to attack those companies. It's it's like the US and the UK, that governments are publicly saying, we don't pay uh, hostage ransoms. Uh, and uh, so very few Americans. Well, some americans and britons still get kidnapped but uh, there there is much less incentive to kidnap them because you don't, won't get any money
1: right i'm glad you said that because i'm not an expert in counterterrorism but i, I do um so somebody um, another argument i have encountered on ransomware payments um on paying ransoms is where all countries would need to move together but actually they think the experience of counterterrorism set, shows you that's not the case i mean i know it was very it led to some extremely difficult cases for you know, tragic cases and so forth but um the uk's policy and the us's policy of banning payments for terrorist kidnappings w- w- was not unsuccessful <laughs> you know i mean people knew that um if you wanted to kidnap somebody to gain money to buy more weapons for a terrorist group then the U- british nationals were not the place you went and yeah. um so uh i mean it's certainly i mean i'm not saying it's a slam dunk but i do think we should be looking very seriously maybe have a consultation look at you know trials and that sort of thing look at um uh, look at it because at the moment it is spiraling a little bit out of control
0: yeah and we should add also that that of course our crazy uh, terrorist groups that, that kidnap for ideological reasons not for money and and they they do kidnap Britons and Americans uh, and as we saw with with uh, the so-called uh, Beatles in, in Isis they were extremely brutal but the the opportunistic kidnappings yes. do uh, do decrease when governments refuse to be <laughs> rent
1: and, and
0: Kieran, I can't let you get off this call without asking you about prospective uh, possible Scottish um, independence, because you are one of the uh, leading experts in the UK on uh, how to conduct a referendum. So um, as we speak, uh, the next Scottish elections for the Scottish Parliament uh, are about one week away. It looks likely that the Scottish National Party will win the majority in the Scottish Parliament. uh, And uh, they would this that that SNP led government would then ask the UK government for a referendum and you tell us what happens after that.
1: Well, firstly, I think whether the Scottish National Party get a majority is very much in the balance, but it looks like the Scottish National Party plus pro-independence allies um, look much more likely than not to have a majority. So ultimately, as you say, then there's there's a new Scottish Parliament elected and there's a majority in that for passing a motion to ask London for a second referendum. Um, And then, um, you know, Britain is very unusual constitutionally. Um, You know, I know people sometimes wonder why, you know, both the UK and the US keep talking about British or American exceptionalism, but you know, the UK doesn't have a formal written constitution in a single document so there's no, you know, um, for better or worse, if it were Spain, it'd be so much simpler, because in Spain, in Article 2 of the Constitution says the Kingdom of Spain is indivisible, so when the Catalan uh, separatists had to, tried to have a referendum, it ended up being declared unlawful and people were jailed and the President of the Catalan Regional Parliament uh, fled and all the rest of it. In the UK, it's essentially a political choice. Uh, there are debates over law as to whether the Scottish Parliament could phrase the law in a certain way in order to have its own referendum, even if London didn't. Uh, allow it. Ultimately, the London could change the law um, to say that's not allowed. So, in my view, it is a straightforward potential if the votes happen the way they do. Like, potential clash between mandate of the voters and law. Um, so, the most likely uh, scenario, given the relative position of the London administration, is uh, a prolonged constitutional standoff, um, where um, because you know the Scottish National Party have no desire and no history to act um uh, uh, uh to act unlawfully um so you know um so th- th- uh here are um here are three possible scenarios and the most likely one is scenario 2 uh, so scenario 1 is there's an election a majority um are elected to the Scottish parliament in favor of a referendum Uh, the UK government says, I know we didn't want this, but we uh, look at the mandate and just like 10 years ago with David Cameron, uh, we say referendum's fine. Um, That is highly unlikely because it'd be such a major uh, reversal. And frankly, politically, it was much easier for David Cameron to uh, to concede a referendum um, at the time because uh, independence was polling at 25 to 35%. It's now polling at somewhere between 46 and 52 percent so yeah. it's a very different maybe a bit more um it's a very very different um uh political uh, risk uh the second option is then that um the uk government say no the scottish parliament go ahead with their um <clears throat> Plan to publish a referendum, but it will then go to the Supreme Court because the UK government has to challenge it if it thinks the Scottish government has succeeded has exceeded its powers. And then we have a very interesting and potentially quite divisive court case, where the UK government the UK government has a set of political arguments as to why a referendum shouldn't take place. It's too soon since the last one. It's we're still not out of the pandemic and all of that but those aren't legal arguments they will have to go to court and say i know we say scotland's a nation but it doesn't have the right to self determination unless we say so uh and oh. so you see how the political awkwardness of that the third option or <clears throat> the two variants are um one is you just keep saying no forever and just say look um you know you can't have a referendum when can we have one not telling you which is kind of where we are now yeah. uh, or you could have a softer version of that which is look it's only seven years we're in a pandemic what are you thinking um scotland is split 50 50 down the middle what are you thinking of and you have an offer of talks about the sort of criteria in the future where you might allow a second referendum uh, but um, uh, so at the minute, I would have thought we're possibly heading for the court battle. I don't think anybody has completely gamed this through to a, a, an end scenario, and a court battle would take us through another year, two years maybe so that's probably as far as I can see ahead
0: which uh, all of that means that that we should be watching the may elections with with great interest because if there is a, a significant uh, majority for uh, independence uh, in in uh, that election uh, for the independence leaning parties then uh, they they will make the case quite forcefully
1: and i think so the scottish elections are genuinely historic if they lead to that sort of outcome um because i think that um whatever happens um you know either we are in for another referendum which i think certainly in the short term is unlikely um uh, but if if if, it, if i'm wrong and it does happen then obviously we're in the middle of another historic contest which looks like it would be very very close um if it doesn't happen then i think we're in a very on um, different and uncharted territory for the uk which because the uk is always Comfortably, even in the Northern Ireland context. I mean, since the departure of what is now the Republic of Ireland, almost exactly a hundred years ago, it'll be a hundred years ago in December, essentially. Uh, since the departure of the Republic of what's now the Republic of Ireland, the UK has sort of said, "Look, the British flag isn't." Um, and then, since the end of empire, the British flag is not going to fly anywhere domestically or overseas where it's not wanted. Um, you know, and that's been used in Northern Ireland uh, as the argument. Northern Ireland's been using the argument in Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands and so forth and whilst the scottish parliamentary elections which you know gets a modest turnout um is you know not the only or definitive measure of scottish opinion you know independence is an independence referendum is the biggest issue and so uh if there is a majority for a referendum and it's denied then this sort of you know comforting british narrative that the union is essentially one of consent not one enforced by law as it is in spain or the u.s when states accede to the union or all of that uh, then i think that narrative is under real pressure and it becomes a very different britain to the one that um, we've all been taught to believe in
0: historic times uh, we have said that for the for the past five years about the uk from the brexit referendum uh, onwards but this uh, this will really uh, be history if the Scotland decides to leave a union that has been in place for uh, since uh, 1703, is it 1707? 1707,
1: the act 1707. was passed 1st of January 1707, it came into force, it was passed in 1706, amid great controversy, but then it was after a troubled 40 years, it became remarkably successful and stable.
0: And this could be the, the end of it, some will share that, some will uh consider it uh, uh, tragic but uh, we will be watching those Scottish elections. And we will also thank Kieran Martin who uniquely combines expertise in cyber defence, cyber deterrence and UK constitutional affairs. Kieran thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me Elizabeth.
0: And as always if you aren't already a subscriber please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify and you can also tweet me at Elizabeth Raw. And many thanks as always to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest just doing pioneering work. See you on the cast.